I definitely feel different about the United States and the flag and all of things, but I also understand, you know, how, what being here, what, what it's done for me and the position that it's put, you know, myself and my family. And so here in the, in the U S I feel like our politicians don't put the people before themselves. And I, (laughs) that's not a place that I necessarily feel like works for me. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Joining us today is a man whose accolades include being an NFL wide receiver, a philanthropist, and possibly the most stylish person I've ever met. Our guest today is Kenny Stills. When not playing wide receiver, Kenny is focused on the Kenny Stills Foundation and his initiative, Still Growing, an effort that intersects mental health and human rights by taking care of our emotional and physical health to battle against racism hate and equality and inequality. Kenny is also one of the first football players to come out of the psychedelic closet and is also a graduate of Field Trips Ketamine Assisted Therapy Program. Kenny, thank you for joining us today and welcome to Field Tripping. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to, to, I'm excited to be out of the closet. <laughs> We're happy to have you out of the closet and, and thank you for reaching out. You know, it was God, it had to be a year ago that you reached out to, I think, Joseph, my business partner on LinkedIn. And, and then we had a call. I remember I was driving down the highway, chatting with you, being like, this is pretty cool. I'm talking to an NFL player uh, about psychedelics. Didn't expect that to happen. So I'm glad, you know, this is the culmination of that relationship uh, up to this point and hopefully more to come. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's, uh, it's pretty um, amazing what happens when you kind of step outside of your comfort zone and start reaching out to people and trying to figure out exactly where you can fit into a space. And so I appreciate y'all, you know, taking the time and us continuing to build this relationship. Me as well. So I had a different question, but why don't we hop into the conversation um, that we were having right before we hit the record button, which was, you're not playing in the NFL right now, but you said that you're looking for that adrenaline hit um, that you would get on the field that you're not getting elsewhere. And, and so you're finding it, it, it elsewhere. I'd love to hear more about that, which is when did you become aware of this and then how have you been trying to fill it? And, and what other insights are, are coming out of this, you know, exploration? One of the things that professional athletes, football players, and, you know, I can speak on worry about obviously is being able to figure out what we're going to do, you know, next after I've been playing football since I was six years old. So I'm 30. It's 24 years of football every year of my life. And so to not have this contact sport, a place where we have this adrenaline rush, where we get to be physical, it's missing in a sense now that I that I haven't played this season. And so I realized maybe, I want to say two years ago, I was playing and then I got released. And so I, I went to the mountains for a little while and I started getting lessons on the snowboard. and. Um, I started to to feel that sense of belonging, that sense of peace and that adrenaline rush that I could find on the mountain by going fast, by making those nice turns um, and really building resilience again by having to start at square one in another sport. You know, when you when you get used to um, playing at a high level and, and mastering something like football, which is, you know, an, an everyday thing, you, you get used to being good at everything. You know, and so to be able to go out there and feel like you have two left feet or, you know, just to be to go out there and fall and and want to quit and have that feeling of like, oh, man, like, forget this. I'm not good at this. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm done with it. And then, you know, to get up the next day and do it again and continue to build that resilience. It, it really showed me um, as I like journaled and looked back at that time, you know, something that I wanted to continue to build on and be a part of. And so snowboarding uh, over the past two years has been huge for me. And then I took up surfing uh, this past year. I, I mean, I, I tried to surf two years ago. I wasn't very good this year. I caught a couple of waves and now I can actually say that I'm a surfer, but um, yeah, just doing things that really challenge me, that scare me and build resilience are, you know, things that I feel like are a good recipe for uh, me as I turn this page and, and go to the next chapter of my life. And last week we had Mike Posner, um, singer songwriter Mike Posner uh, on and having a conversation. And one of the things he talked about was actually that, which is he found that he 
skyrocketed success, ups and downs, and then came to a point where he realized he wasn't living his life. He was living someone else's life and that he had spent his whole life in pursuit of comfort when his true essence, at least where he is right now, was about being uncomfortable and stepping outside of his comfort zone. And so he walked across America, he climbed Everest, he did all of these things. And uh, and in, in many ways, it sounds like you're on a similar kind of path with surfing and snowboarding and all that kind of stuff, putting yourself outside of your comfort zone. Has this been a, a kind of new realization for you? Or have you always been a person who's like, ah, fuck it, let's, let's fuck around, let's find out what happens? Like, wh- wh- where is that for you? I think it's been more conscious as of late. Um, I can, the last time that I could think of something that I had to do that I didn't want to do was maybe like 20, 2016. 2016, I decided I was going to go on this trip basically all throughout the South to learn about what was happening. I wanted to educate myself on what was happening in the South, and I wanted to visit all the African-American history museums and, and do some mentorship work. And when I signed up to do this trip, it's like 21 days in an RV. And I was thinking I was just kind of going to get to show up and kind of be a sponge and listen and learn. Ended up being that, you know, some of the schools that I visited wanted me to, you know, speak to the kids and talk about, you know, community police relations and talk about the protests and why we were taking a knee during the national anthem. And so I'm, I'm preparing as we go on this trip to like put a speech together. And I'm at that point really didn't like public speaking. And so that's the last time that I can think of where I was like, damn, I got to do something that I really don't want to do. I'm afraid of doing. Um, and here we go. And so I pushed through it, you know, through these, through that trip. And some of the talks went really well and some of them I bombed. And, you know, that's just how it goes. It's part of life. But I think ever since then, something kind of turned in me to where if I'm afraid of something or if it gets a rise out of me or I start sweating or my body has some type of reaction and I'm intimidated, that's the direction that I want to go. And so um, now I kind of search those things out more. Things really interesting and fun and it's really a part of me and it's something that I kind of challenge a lot of my friends and family to do as well if if they're ready. You know, I feel like you've got to be in a place, you know, your cup's got to be full, et cetera, for you to be able to really be out there um, trying to build adversity and put yourself in challenging spots. Totally. That's awesome. And thank you for sharing that. Uh, it's interesting hearing someone say it's been six years since I had to do something that I didn't really want to do. And I think there's a lot of people who would sit in awe and envy and probably jealousy of that. And so it's, it's, it's cool for you to be just candid about that. You know, that is part of your experience. Well, I'll say too, it's a lot of that has to do with, with mindset and like the work that I've done in that space, you know? So like I've, I've said before, um, but for the people that haven't, you know, heard me speak before i started therapy um and mindset work with like a life coach uh in 2016 early early 2016 and the mindset work combined with the therapy and you know the use of psychedelics all like the three things really helped me turn the corner when it comes to just my overall perspective um in life and an example of that would be like Recently, I had a trip. I was going to go to, I had a trip planned to Bali because I'm like in between trying to figure out if I want to continue to play or not. I've still been training. I'm still ready to go, but I had a trip planned to Bali. And so the day before I leave for this trip, I get a call from my agent like, hey, we we want you to go work out for a team. And I'm like, okay, so I have to cancel this trip uh, to Bali so that I could go you know, work out. That's what I've been preparing for this whole time. And as soon as I called the airline to cancel the trip, I knew that I wanted to be done with football and that I wanted to go on this trip to Bali. Like as soon as I had to call in and make that, you know, I got the official email and stuff. I was in the shower. I got out and I was like, damn, I'm, I, I'm done with football, like wow. mentally and physically. Like I don't, I don't want to play football anymore, but I had already agreed to go to this workout and I had already canceled my, uh, my flight to Bali. So at that point, mentally it was like okay we're gonna go do this thing you're gonna go prove that you can still play that you're good to go you're gonna go out there and give your best effort and that is what it is because you know that's the position that you're in and so i've built up enough of that in in my mindset to say hey this is the decision now we're going with it don't don't second guess it don't you know sit here and like be down and out and worried about it just okay these are the decisions and these are things that are happening so let's go execute how is that different like if you could put yourself in kenny stills 
2015, before you started this therapy and mindset work, how, how would you have reacted differently in those circumstances? We talk about with my life coach, we talk about the ability to be able to have something happen to you. And then how long does it take you to recover? And that's the measurement in like the progress that we've been able to make. And that's how I, that's how I look at that. It's like, I think at that point in time, I would have been, you know, all the way up until the workout in my head, you know, oh, I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. Why am I here? I wish I was in Bali. Oh, you know, all these things where in that, in that instance, in that case, it was like, okay, I made the decision and that's that, you know, in my, in my mind and, and in my body, it was like, okay, here, this is what you wanted to do, but this is what you have to do. So we're going and then, you know, second grass where we just full steam ahead to the thing that we made the choice on. And so I, I think about it that way as like the ability to be able to recover from, you know, anything that has thrown you off of your path and how long that takes you. And sometimes it's shorter, sometimes it's longer, but I think that's, that's how I measure my progress in the space and with my own personal wellness. And I think uh, an important point is not just measuring how long or how short it is, is also to have compassion when, for yourself when it takes longer. Being like, yeah. this sucks, oh, but I'm going to have compassion for it. And 100%. that's something I still struggle with. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so I have this question here that I'm going to read, but there's a, a few pieces to it. So I said, growing up, I always wanted to be a professional athlete. Unfortunately, my 5'9 Jewish genetics eventually overpowered my athletic drive, and I settled for a life of lawyering and entrepreneurship. I'm not sure it was a fair trade, but I'm also not complaining. Curious to know, uh, what was it like growing up in a football household? Were you always bent on becoming a pro athlete? And fast forwarding to now, what is it like not playing football? It sounds like you had a crystal clear moment of like, I'm done with this. But up until you hit that point, I can only imagine that there's got to be a lot of chaos internally when you've spent, you know, the 20, last 24 years dedicated to this goal in a family in many ways that seems to have been dedicated to this goal. So there's got to be a lot of identity issues that come up when, when you make that decision. So what was it like growing up in a, in a football household and, and how was it making that transition to be like, I'm done with football? And, and also in that, what was it like, like not being on a team for the first time? I, I also imagine that's got to be devastating, but I'm curious to know what the experience was. So growing up in a football household, um, it's really funny. My dad played professional football for seven years, but my mom was the person that pushed football on me. She signed me up at six. I played tackle from the very beginning. And she made sure that I played every year, that I was at practice all the time. She was she was the one that made sure that I was playing ball all the time. I I dreamed of playing in the NFL and playing college football. I had a ball in my hand since I was a little baby and running around the house doing push-ups and sit-ups. Like no one ever had to tell me to do anything. I was literally just like bred for ball. And accomplishing that goal um was something that like, you know you believe you can do something, but when you do it still, it's, it's very surreal and unbelievable in a sense, you know, uh, my parents always, you know, taught me to be humble. And, um, I think I kind of mistook or like didn't misunderstood like confidence and like humble. I didn't know the two things between like being humble and, and having confidence. And so I think in my younger, earlier careers, I, in my earlier years of my career, I struggled with like my overall confidence. I had to like have these mantras and things that I read and remind myself all the time that like, hey, like I'm here. I deserve to be here. I'm one of the best at what I do. I never wanted to be like perceived as this like diva, like cocky, you know, asshole type of dude. And so I really I struggle with that. But then, you know, obviously as things continue to go on, you just you have these mantras and you and you really start to believe and you see your highlights and you see, you know, the, the things that you're able to do. And so I look back at my career um, post now and I think about what, why I played and what my motivation was. And my, my motivation in the very beginning was to take care of my family and take care of my mom. I'm a single parent. She raised five kids on her own and she, you know, never really had in my, from my perspective, a man that treated her the way that I thought she should have been treated and taken care of. And so my motivation was always to take care of her. And so I look back at my career now that I'm able to say, you know, that I'm okay 
with being done and in a way of understanding that I did what I, I came to, I did what I accomplished. I mean, I accomplished what I wanted to, which was take care of my mom. You know, she's in a good place. Um, we have a great relationship. Most of my family's in a good place and I'm happy with that. I'm proud of that. You know, I've, I, you know, you dream of, you know, being an all pro or a Super Bowl winner or going to the Pro Bowl, all these different things, all the accolades that you, that you hope to accumulate. But in the grand scheme of things, I, I did what, what I set out to do. And that was to take care of my mother. And so I'm, I'm really proud of that. I think, you know, I, I have more years in the tank. Um, you know, I can continue to play at a high level, but to play nine years, um, to be fairly healthy, have no major injuries and to have built the network and connections that I have, um, to be able to stand up for black and brown people and, and social justice in ways that, you know, I never could have imagined, you know, I feel like I came and did what I was supposed to do. And I'm, I'm really excited about, you know, what's next. And if that's something really big, then that's great. And if that's something, you know, really basic and, and smooth, and I just kind of disappear off in the wind, then, then that's great too. Thank you for sharing all of that. That last comment is particularly interesting, which is I'm the farthest thing from a celebrity. But when I go to conferences, I psychedelic space, I got a lot of attention, which I don't actually particularly love because it totally triggers my internal shyness. But every once in a while, I get a sense of how it must be for athletes and celebrities to go from fame to no fame and how trying that may be. And it sounds like you're you're approaching it pretty open-mindedly, but I can only imagine you know, every once in a while, I, beyond being a having dreams of being an athlete, or I also had dreams of being a musician, but I lack rhythm and tone. So that was also cast out from my my list of uh, future accomplishments. But I can only imagine what it must be like standing in front of like 80,000 people cheering your name or whatever the case may be, and how intoxicating that must be. And to, to go back into normal life and just be a citizen must be jarring. Are you prepared for that? Or is that still a work in progress? Yeah. Definitely, definitely prepared for not having the the spotlight on me. I enjoy, you know, being a regular dude, and I, I'm I've never really been one for the attention. You know, it's not been my thing. It comes with what we do. I've I've always played better in the bigger games and under the lights. But yeah, man, I'm I'm actually really excited to like I I, I go places and travel um, by myself and and try to be a nobody. Like that's, that's my thing. I think in the off season, um, at least for the last four years, even through COVID we traveled and like, I always try to go places and I don't want, I don't tell people what I do. I don't tell people who I am. I try to go by myself and really just vibe with the people and, and be like everyone else. And I think that was my way of preparing myself for not really being in the spotlight, but you never know. We'll see. You know, I know that I'm competitive and when I really think about like who I am, um, we talk about, you know, really like over the last, you know, couple of months coming to the decision of being like, okay, I'm ready, you know, to turn the page. And I, when I had times where I faltered a little bit um, and was nervous about turning the page and nervous about being done and skeptical, skeptical about, you know, who I am and what I care about when I really got to the nuts and bolts and the foundation of who I am. I don't, I don't think that being in the spotlight is something that really is, um, of like relevance to me. You know, That's I like, great. I like to serve other people. Um, I like action sports. I like being outside. I like, you know, psychedelics. And so I think all of the, the things that I'm passionate about will do a good job of taking over the things that I'll miss from playing in sports. A guy who does psychedelics and therapy, at least therapy back in 2016. I don't know when psychedelics entered the conversation uh, <laughs> in probably the most hyper masculine business in the world. How was that received by your your teammates and, and your friends in the NFL? And then did you take a lot of shit for it or was, are people pretty open-minded? The locker room is fairly conservative just because the black and brown community basically makes up a majority of the locker room. And um, black people have had negative experiences with with drugs, you know, being with the with crack and with cocaine. And so a lot of people are skeptical when it comes to any drugs. Yeah. So that's I think that's more people are more 
just skeptical in a sense of the way that the government has, you know, told us about psychedelics and talked to us about psychedelics and scared us with propaganda about psychedelics. And so it's, it's more that than anything. Um, I think the softness that has come from me using psychedelics and going to therapy and learning more about myself also is is a little bit intimidating because the locker room is so masculine and there isn't really this place for this balance and i don't think coming you know speaking for myself like i, I didn't come from a place of balance i didn't you know it wasn't something that was like passed on from you know my dad or from my grandpa and so we're navigating new space you know when you're navigating new space it's it is you know, it can be a challenge. It's different, but I feel so comfortable with like who I am and in my skin that like, if dudes want to talk, then we'll sit in the locker room and chat or we'll go have lunch or whatever and chat. And I try to help as many people as I can with a, with a little bit of knowledge that I have, but also just encourage guys to, you know, to read and to listen to podcasts and get out there and try to educate themselves as much as possible and just unlearn um, some of the things that we've been taught and, and learn for yourself and, and kind of get your own perspective and mindset on on what you think about psychedelics and how, or if they can help you. Appreciate that. Was that true in 2016? Like even taking psychedelics out of the equation, because there's a whole conversation around drugs and the war on drugs and black and brown communities and how they were treated through that. But even just going to therapy, was that, uh, was that received with scorn or, or were people open to it? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't say much to anybody about me getting therapy just my partner at the time uh, the the woman that i was dating knew and like you know the mindset coach and that's about it maybe my head coach because him and i had a good relationship at the time and he he really just cared about me and knew the backlash that was coming from the protests um you know for people that don't know i grew up in oceanside california which is by camp pendleton a military base so all of the influence all the male influence in my life were Marines, all my coaches, baseball, football, basketball, all military background. And then for high school, I went to school in a predominantly white area. That's kind of like a surfer beach town. And so for me to take a knee during the national anthem, it was like, I've had everyone that had helped raise me and be a part of my life, you know, turn their back on me because they thought I was, you know, anti-military, anti-police. And so uh, there was a point in time in my life where it was just like my girl and I, and, you know, you know, a couple of people that really like showed their support and had my back and everything else was just like, you know, Facebook messages from people that I, you know, parents of kids that I went to high school with calling me all types of crazy names and hate mail, like handwritten hate mail. And so, you know, we'd go to games and there'd be fans in the front row, like, yelling the n-word and all types of stuff and it got to the point where like my teammates or the the training staff or the coaches that might not have respected what i was doing started to feel bad because of the way that i was being treated and i think you know that people really were were worried you know about like where i was mentally because i was you know i was quiet i didn't say much i started to just my whole perspective on life changed being an athlete and being a good athlete your whole life people kind of not like cater to you, but they definitely like, I didn't have any pushback in any, in any places. You know, I was fairly quiet, good dude, you know, respectful, disciplined. Like I, you know, I did everything that I was, you know, asked to do. And so I never really had any pushback. And so the first time that I decide to speak up or speak out about something, you know, then I, I get a ton of pushback. And so my eyes are open. I'm like, all right, well, damn, racism still exists. One, it's, it's global. Two, and it's and it's for them from the people that I thought I loved and trust and knew the most as well. And so um, my eyes are really open and, and it really just broke my heart, honestly. And so it, it put me in a place of, of hate and it put me in a place of uh, just complete like darkness and sadness. And so um, I, I was pushed into <laughs> getting therapy because I was tired of the way that I thought, the way that I felt. And um, I wanted to do something about it. I didn't want to treat people. I didn't want to be a mirror for what was pe how people were treating me. And so I, I needed to get help. And, and so 
I went that way. It didn't matter what anyone else thought or if if people were going to judge me or not. Like I knew that I was in control of my life and I didn't want to continue to go on the way that I was. And, and this isn't meant to be provocative, even though it may sound a little bit provocative. If it wasn't anti-military, what was, like in your words, what was the impetus for, for taking the knee? I know there's like a broader racist conversation, but I'd, I'd be curious to know the texture of it and the, and the color of it. What was going through your head and what, what statement were you making um, from from Kenny Stills? At that point in my life, 2016, I had never voted yet. Okay. And for and so that was the election between Donald Trump and and Hillary Clinton. And so in order for me, I wanted to vote that year. And in order for me to vote, I need to be educated on politics. We didn't grow up in a household where we talked about politics. I couldn't tell you Republican, Democrat, Independent. I couldn't tell you anything about anything. Now I'm I'm no idiot, but we just did not talk politics in my house. It just wasn't a conversation. So in order for me to vote, I had to get educated. So I started paying attention to current events. I, I watched all the debates. I did all the things that I felt like were going to help me be an educated voter. And as I started to pay attention, I started to see how often <laughs> um, black and brown people were being killed by the police, and how common it was for them to be doing nothing at all wrong for them to deserve this and how common it was that there was no justice served for our people. And I felt like that was wrong and wanted to do something about it. And so I saw what Colin was doing. I saw what Megan Rapinoe was doing. I saw what Eric, Eric Reed was doing. And I saw that as an opportunity for me to tell people and show people that what's happening is wrong and that we need to do something about it. It was that simple. You know, and I, like I said, I didn't, I knew nothing about politics. I knew nothing about government outside of what they had taught us in school, which wasn't very much. I didn't know much about the space. I just had a feeling in my gut and in my heart that what was happening wasn't right and it wasn't an accident. And so, yeah, I decided to take a knee to, to let people know that one, I'm, I'm with the people and letting them know like, Hey, we're going to do something about this. Something needs to be done about it. And it's not okay. And as an athlete and as a black as I'm, I'm, I'm African-American, I'm black and Mexican. And so to be able to stand up for our people and say, Hey, like we need to do something about this. And I want to be a part of, um, the change. What do you think was the biggest misconception for all those people who yelled things at you or turned their back on you? What were they thinking of you? Uh, uh that was incorrect. Um, I think it's, it's hard to say for everyone. It's different, you know? So like, like I said, my, my mentor from like six years old all the way until that moment until I decided to take a knee was, was my pop Warner coach, uh, who was a Marine for like 30 plus years. And I called him the night before to let, you know, to get his advice on the situation. And, you know, long story short, he tells me, you know, I hope that you wouldn't get involved in the protests and, you know, the people see the American flag as this symbol and they felt like we were disrespecting the country, that we were disrespecting the flag, that we were disrespecting our military, you know, that go out and fight for all the freedoms that we have. And not just, I think the biggest misunderstanding was just the fact that people aren't really educated and don't understand like nuance. And so if the only information that you know is what you hear from what's being told from some guy on the TV or the rate, the station that you listen to or whatever, you're not doing any research on your own. Then like we most of the time can't really have a, a true like conversation about anything. You're just spewing like, and regurgitating like lines that you're hearing from somebody else. And so a lot of time we spend time, I would have conversations with people and they have these talking points, but like, don't really like have any real understanding to back them up. And so, yeah, the misunderstanding was just basically the narrative that was, you know, told by Donald Trump at the time and by the media at the time, because like I said, I grew up, all my mentors are military. Why, why would I be against the military? Why would I be against the police? You know, we just want accountability from our, you know, by the police department, by our law enforcement. And, you know, we feel like that's something that can happen. You know, the police officer shouldn't be above the law. You shouldn't be able to just shoot somebody in their back and say that you you fear for your life. Like that, that doesn't make any sense. No, no regular person can do that. They would be prosecuted. So, so why does a police officer get to do that? And why do if, why is it that if they are convicted, then they can 
go to another district and become a police officer in that place again. Like there's just the way that the things are set up, the way that the system was set up is, is it didn't make sense and it's outdated and needed to be changed. And so, yeah, I mean, when we sit down and really have conversation, when people, if you were to go to visit the African-American history museums and learn about the history and learn where police even come from in the United States, like all these things, it's like, it's right there in front of us, but we don't take the time to really get educated on issues that we care about. We just hear something, read a headline, and then we're upset. And, and we can't really make any progress with, with that type of attitude or, or style of, um, you know, paying attention to current events and hot topics. Totally. Uh, we, we did a podcast episode uh, called It's About the Nuance, um, because that's what's so sorely lacking, I think, in our society, which is you can be anti-police brutality, without being anti-police and, and those are very different concepts and and with just a fraction of a section of consideration you know you can see the difference but somehow that gets lost and and it's entirely frustrating uh, and, and it's one of the things that truthfully scares me about our society is that you know we can't even have a conversation people aren't paying attention they have their talking points and they will talk about them and they won't listen and uh, i don't know how you meet in the middle and, and you know for I don't even know where it happened, but at some point, like uh, people became enemies, right? Right versus left, police, pro-police, anti-police became enemies, and you can't have a conversation with your enemy um, most of the time, and it's it's incredibly frustrating and, and scary. Did that experience change your perspective of you know the United States and the, and the flag and all that kind of stuff? I've I've kind of come to the point in my life um, where I feel like the notion of a nation state is probably one of the most damaging constructs we've ever created. Very functional from an administration perspective, but very damaging from uh, just about every other perspective, and probably the source of a lot of uh, the the suffering that goes on in our society, not exclusively, but it uh, it seems like a really silly artificial construct for it to exist at all. Um, and so I'm curious to know if that experience changed your perspective of what it is to be an American, uh, or to, you know, belong to a country or whether, you know, you still have your appreciation for the United States, um, just needing to advance the conversation. I definitely feel different about the United States and the flag and all of, all of things, um, United States of America, but I also understand, you know, how, what being here, what, what it's done for me and the position that it's put, you know, myself and my family. And so I um, am curious, you know, to explore what life is like in other places. Um, you know, yep. I'm single, I don't have any kids. And so I'm interested in, you know, traveling and figuring out if something else works for me because I have the ability to do that. I'm in a position to be able to do that. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't, I just, I, I feel like we're, we're taking a lot of steps backwards um, here in the in the U.S., I feel like our politicians don't put the people before themselves, and I <laughs> that's not a place that I necessarily feel like works for me. And so I I don't know, you know, it's 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 on me to find a place that I feel like does work for me and a place that I feel like I want to build a family in and and these things. And so <laughs> I do feel differently about the United States, and when I do see the flag, I do feel like that is um in some way or shape or form of i definitely feel a little judgy about when i see the american flag now people that are flying the american flags or they have them out i just feel like they it, it makes me a little skeptical a little nervous and it's a it's shameful to say that you know um it's shameful to say you know negative things about about the country but that's the place that we're in and so I got into the mental health space the personal wellness space the psychedelic space with the thought of helping myself and others heal, you know, and get to a place where we can run these systems of government um, in a way that is more beneficial for all of us, in a place that we all coexist, in a place that, um, you know, we're look we're all looking out for each other, and that comes from a place of love. And so, uh, to bring all that back is like, yeah, I'm I'm worried about the place that we're in as human beings and as in the United States, but that's that's really why I'm here, and that's why I choose, um, and I'm going to choose to you know continue to use the platform that I have, whether it be you know on the big stage or on the small stage, you know, with friends and family and the people that I'm around to say, hey, we've got to do better um, as human beings, and uh, I feel like I have a couple of ideas of ways that we can do that, and so let's let's work towards that. 
Yeah. Uh, we had Carl Hart on uh, the podcast a couple of months ago and he said, you can't be black and conscious and live in America all year round. And so he spends half his time in Switzerland. That, that probably resonates with you. Okay. Let's talk psychedelics. So what was your first experience with psychedelics and, and take us through that? Um, I'd love to hear about your experience with field trips specifically, but let's go back to you know, a, a black American who probably has not only received all of the messaging about drugs being bad that anybody got in high school, but the unique circumstances of your community. When did you make the decision that this was an area of exploration for you? And, and what was it, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, no, we, I mean, we started casually using, using drugs like in high school. So mushrooms, yep. ecstasy, whatever, like we were all doing together. You know, we we uh, enjoyed ourselves if it was like a little teen night or like a teen club or whatever we were doing. But yeah. uh, my first real experience, I would say, I think I came back from I graduated high school early and went to college um, for like that winter semester. All my friends were still in school. And when I came back after graduation, we all did like a hero dose of 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 mushrooms together at one of my friends house uh, houses. And that was my true first experience, I guess, tripping, if you want to say. And um, I actually, it was a bad one. And my perspective or theory on bad trips, quote unquote, is just things that are in the subconscious or things that are that we haven't dealt with coming up, coming out to play and coming and showing up. Um, and so I actually felt like, and this was something that, you know, I don't know if it was true or not, or something that I was making up in my head, but I felt like my friends were like, there was like this feeling of jealousy from my friends of like the success that I was having. And so I separated myself from them um, and just like was going around my friend's house and like they had a bunch of artwork and stuff. And so I was just like by myself on this trip as I started to feel anxious and just like weird and like that negative energy. Um, so yeah, that was, that was my first experience it was just like, okay, we were all together having a good time. And then all of a sudden the energy shifted. I was feeling this like weird sense of like anxiety and like this jealousy in the room. And so I just separated myself from that energy and went and just kind of like focused on music and the paintings and the artwork in the house. And, and that was that. And, uh, in reflection, do you think that feeling was real? I would think that it was, no, I think that it was just more the place that I was in, uh, you know, being young and feeling like I had done something or like accomplished something or like, you know, I felt like I was just, I think like my head was big and my chest was out. And so I was like in my head about thinking like, oh damn, like they think a certain way about me or feel a certain way about me based off of one comment being that I'm sensitive to um, communication, that I'm sensitive to body language, that I'm sensitive to people's energy. Like I'm just a sensitive person and not knowing that at the time um, and not being comfortable exploring that or saying that, you know, it's something that, you know, now that I'm 30, I'm like, oh shit, I am sensitive. I do care people's body language and their words do matter to me, you know? And so thinking back now at that experience, I think it was just something I was in my own head about, but something that I also needed to come to the forefront so that I could figure out, Hey buddy, you're sensitive <laughs> and, and that's okay. And when, you know, when you don't like something, go change the temperature, go put some music on, go do, do something else. And so, yeah, I always, I always try to reframe this idea of a bad trip to just the subconscious bringing up things that need to come to the forefront. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. It's, um, it's a conversation that seems to come up a lot these days in my circles, which is sensitive men who spent their whole lives guarding against that sensitivity for fear of it being weak, but it's coming up so often. And, and I certainly the same way for me, which is I would never have considered myself to be sensitive. Um, and actually, we, we've been going through and making uh, this documentary, Ordinary Trip. And the first time someone said something and it actually landed with me was uh, our psychiatrist, um, Hans, in, in the Netherlands, who I did an intake with. And, and in a subsequent interview, he identified that I was a sensitive person. And then I put up all these guards um, to, to protect myself from that. Uh, and it totally landed. And it's like, oh, yeah. And, and just 
conversation after conversation with men. I'm meeting more and more men coming out saying, yeah, I'm actually a very sensitive soul. And uh, it's, it's really cool to share that experience and, and come out and, and be honest about it. Because uh, I think of all, if there's one single thing we could do to change the trajectory of all the political things that we just talked about, it's getting men to open up that side of themselves, I think could probably create the single largest impact of anything we can be doing right now. Uh, because so much of what we experience that's challenging is, you know, a great distortion of, of like what the masculine canon should be. Um, and uh, so th- thank you for, for being open and, and honest about that. When was the first time you came out of the psychedelic closet kind of publicly and, and how was that received? Um, well, I mean, with your private circles, all my friends, you know, all the people around me pretty much know I'm very comfortable with like my mom and, you know, my parents and that type of stuff. Just have, we've always just kind of had that type of relationship. So people close to me, I've always known that, um, you know, I like to explore and, but publicly it was recently. I mean, um, you know, when we started working together and I started talking about microdosing uh, a little bit publicly, and it was really just because of, I saw the benefits and what it could do for people, you know, and we had a close friend of ours take his life and, um, you know, to be working so closely in the mental health space and to lose somebody, um, just understanding, you know, the different like not not understanding that like you know you could have such close relationship with people you could talk to them every day they could know that you're working on mental health stuff they could come to my you know still growing summit and be a part of that and you know all the information be there and still not help but not be able to you know find the ability to be able to reach out and connect and and make a change um you know, or, or really impact in a way that um, can make a difference. I just, you, you understand the power of the brain and, you know, chemical imbalances and, and just the different things that are happening. And so it was time for me to say, hey, look, there's a group of people. I have a platform um, and I want people to know that, you know, there's other ways for us to, to get help and to potentially change, you know, where we're at in our perspective. And it's, it was an opportunity for me to influence people in a, in, a, in a positive way again. And so I felt like it was it was time and it was right. And how was it received when you came up, came out more publicly about it? I think it was received fairly well. Honestly, a lot of people were curious, a lot of people trying to figure out, Hey, you know, where can, you know, they get stuff to help them or where's the information. It's a lot of questions. There wasn't much negativity, honestly, at all. I don't know how the league took it. I don't know how, you know, potential employers took it or what have you. I haven't gotten a job. So, you know, I played last year for a little bit. Nobody said anything to me about it but yeah i mean i feel like it was received fairly positively i didn't i thought there would be a little bit more pushback but there's also you know like my social media has all of the keyword blocks you know blocks and all those things now since since the protests and so if anything was said that was negative i just i probably didn't see it (laughs) so right um but yeah no received fairly well a lot of people asking questions a lot of people that are interested a lot of people that want help a lot of people that want to get away from their, um, you know, prescription drugs that they're using and feel like this could potentially be the space for them. So I think that we need to get a move on what's, you know, getting legalized and how we can help people here in the States. Awesome. And uh, Aaron Rodgers just came out publicly. I think you were mentioning the article uh, as well. And, and any thoughts or feedback around that? And also, have you tried to have conversations with the NFL or the owners around this um, or is it you haven't, or there's just like no interest to have that conversation right now? So the Aaron Rodgers stuff was really interesting. I think it opened a lot of eyes for people uh, to see a successful uh, white man talk about ayahuasca and psychedelics and his drug usage, I think has a lot wider reach in a sense, uh, you know, MVP, Super Bowl, all of all of those things. So I was really um, excited and just grateful that he put himself out there in that way and, and shared because I think he opened a lot of eyes just with his conversation and just who he is and his experience. So extremely positive there. And I, I haven't had any conversations with the league about it. The league is pretty reluctant to work with me just because they know that I'm a no-nonsense, no-bullshit type of dude. So 
there's no fluff when it comes to me, right? If you know you want to work with me, then we're gonna do it a certain way, and that's my expectation, or we won't work together, and and that's cool too, <laughs> you know. And so, uh, if I have ideas about stuff, I bring things up. I think they're very uh, just skeptical, just because I know, hey, like I'm I'm not gonna shy away from from uh, the truth of of what I think is real, and I see huge opportunity for the NFL or for MLB or for our our soccer or any of the major sports leagues to get involved in the space because one they can push the envelope but two like so many they can help so many guys and um in the nfl in particular they have haven't done a good job with um optics as of late and so for them it's you know it's a good story for them to say hey you know for so many years you know we covered up brain trauma and brain injuries but you know now look at what we're doing you know we're on the forefront, you know, we're pioneers in helping in this, in this psychedelic space and figuring out how we can, um, you know, help regenerate, do in, in regenerative medicine for the brain and help guys that are struggling. And it's an easy way to, uh, for them to, to cover their asses in a sense. And so, I mean, and that's a shame that that's how you have to sell it to them, but I think those are, you know, the types of people that, that we work with in, in that business. And so it's like, it's a good way for them to shape it, but it's also, they can do so much good for so many dudes. And so. I hope to be able to have a conversation or to work with somebody else who has a better relationship with the league to push them to have those conversations and um, continue to share with them, you know, the benefits and how we can help our retired guys and our guys that are playing at the moment. It's interesting because many athletes, not all, but many athletes are held up to be role models, right? And so the platform that the NFL and the NBA and the NHL and MLB have to actually model, you know, pro-social productive behaviors uh, is, is so powerful and, and yet they're so reticent to talk about so much of this stuff. And, and in some ways I get it because, you know, just yesterday I was listening to um, Gabor Mate, who just published a book called The Myth of Normal, talking about how much a lot of the suffering in our culture is a result of you know, the hyper competition that we live in. And in many ways, professional athletes is the epitome of hyper competition, right? It is the ultimate of competition short of all out war. Uh, so I guess there is a somewhat inherently baked existential threat, uh, in, in supporting the avenues for psychedelics, uh, it, within the leagues, but it does seem like it would be such an incredible platform to, to shift the conversation and, and, and move things forward. So certainly there's anything I can do to be of assistance, but I'm pretty sure the NFL is not paying attention to me right now either. So uh, it's, it's, I'm not sure if that moves the needle, but certainly, um, you know, you have my support. It would be um, huge to be able to, you know, get field trip at, you know, the next players association event, you know, to have a presentation and share with guys about, you know, the benefits and how, how I can help. And, you know, that's, that's something that, you know, I've, I continue to push for, but, you know, we just, we just, I think the league has always been very reactionary the most, you know, and so it's, instead of being a pioneer in the space, they, you know, they wait until now, like you, you'll see them, they just donated however much money to cannabis research and how marijuana helps with recovery. And it's like, fam, we've known what, what, what cannabis is, can do for us for how long now? And yeah. you're just putting up this check for optics to say, oh, look what we're doing. We're doing research and all this stuff. And it's just, and that's, that's the hardest part for me working with people in that sense of like, I don't want to do anything for show. <laughs> Whatever we're doing, we're doing because we have an opportunity to make an impact and make a change. If not, then let's not do it. <laughs> just don't do it at all. You know, don't, don't, don't write a check for, for marijuana research. You know what, you know what cannabis is doing. Like, well, let's, let's, let's do something real here. You know, and so hopefully in times, right, we can um, we can get involved and and educate dudes in the players' association, and hopefully they can move the, me the needle. But until then, we just keep doing what we're doing. Exactly. How was your experience with Field Trip? Uh, I'm curious to know. Was that your first true psychedelic assisted therapy experience, and and was it your first experience with ketamine? Tell me all about it. This is the first time we've actually spoken directly about it, so I'd love to hear it from your mouth. Yeah. So was not my first experience with ketamine, but I was even more interested because of the my casual usage with ketamine and yeah it was my first experience with um any type of um, assisted therapy 
And I mean, obviously my experience was a positive one, um, but just very like heavy in a sense of, I left really light, but the experience like was the, was the deepest that I've had with any um, psychedelic that I've used. And yeah, it was really like using the wave path stuff. Wave path is like a, a game changer, you know, with the music and being able to that really like controlled kind of the destination and the destiny where I was going. So every time, you know, the songs would change, like where I was in, in perspective of like my trip was changing. And I, the thing that I took away from it the most was this visual that I had of this like human it was in a human form but it had like a wolf sheep's head on it and it was like you know like an old chief, like old native like a chief and it was like this human that had this wolf sheep head on it and it was like ascending at a rapid pace like straight up and it just felt so like i felt like i was seeing like a representation of myself in a way of like leadership right the chief would have like this big wolf wolf head on him and understanding like the power that i had um and and using that power for good and knowing that it wasn't you know that there was it was like a reminder to me that like hey you're in this place you have this position and there's like i felt like we were in a sense like on the up and up regardless of if like you know where my career was or how i felt about my life at the point or any of those things like i felt like it was a reminder of hey you have you have this power and you have to continue to build yourself because the, the direction that we're going is up you know and we're going to continue to be to be progressing in a way and i saw a lot of like temples like all the rooms were every room that i was like in or like every picture every perspective that shifted and changed was like in a shape, in a shape of a temple. Sometimes they were really dark. Sometimes they were really like live and visual. Like I was at like a, like a temple in the jungle one time and just like almost on like a bird's eye view of this temple. And then the music would shift and then I'd be in another temple and it would be pitch black and it's just me in there. And that's when I had to actually ask if uh, the therapist was in there. I'm like, am I, am I here? Like, am I still here? Cause I was so disassociated that I didn't think that I was still where I was. And right. she's like, yeah, I'm here, I'm here. And then she came over and held my hand. And then, then boom, then it was over. And it was really quick. And I think it's because I've had, I think it was maybe like 15 or 20 minutes, but it was, I think I, I needed more, a bigger dose. And I, you know, I've had used ketamine before, so I think I built up a tolerance to it. And so, but yeah, I just had this very like uplifting, deep experience. And, um, I'm excited for my next. Awesome. And how did, what was the therapy afterwards like? Um, Cause I think a lot of people don't really understand psychedelic assisted therapy and they think it's psychedelics and oh yes, therapy, but what came out in the actual therapy about how to translate that experience into something that's tangible and that can hold on to. I think that was what was different at first too, was like, you don't know if you want to share the things that you're seeing so that like, they can take notes or if you want to just keep all the things to yourself. And so it's this, I think it's, I would always recommend people to, to do, you know, more than one session, a couple sessions, um, at yep. least just to get comfortable one with the exploration, but then two with, you know, having somebody in the room with you because you come from, you know, you know, being around friends or people that, you know, to, you know, being with somebody who, you know, is a professional. And so, uh, yeah, it was just interesting to be able to just kind of talk and share like what I'm seeing and then to be able to kind of go through and her and I talk about, you know, what I was seeing and what those things could potentially mean based off of, you know, what I'd shared with her about my life and some of the things that were going on. And yeah, it just, it's almost like if you were to have your own casual experience and then be sitting there taking notes and then wake up the next morning and then be able to be like, oh, okay, now I can dig a little bit deeper, dive a little bit deeper into what I was seeing and the experience that I was having. And then it becomes more a part of you, you know, than just like having this experience and then, you know, falling asleep or whatever, and then kind of getting up the next day, remembering little bits and pieces of it. You know, if you can really like have someone there looking after you and, and, 
and like taking notes on your experience and you're able to like have those conversations and then really they can become a part of you instead of just like a one-off thing. Totally. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all of that. It sounds like it was a very profound and certainly very visual experience, but I know I've been caught in those moments where you're like, I know I left somewhere and I don't know if that's where I'm going back to. Uh, and then you realize you have a body again. You're like, oh, okay. Yeah, I know where I'm back. Okay. Um, and it's, it's nice to have that, that person's hand to hold to be like, oh yeah, no, there's still people here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Tell us about uh, the Kenny Stills Foundation and uh, your still growing initiative. I know we touched on it a little bit. What, what is what is your hope? What is your goal? What are the initiatives underway there? Yeah, so um, the Kenny Stills Foundation has an arm called uh, Still Growing, which we run the Still Growing Summit through. And that is a one-day summit that um, talks about any, everything in, in the wellness space. Um, we ran our first one in 2019 before COVID in Miami. Uh, we had 300 people there, 200 kids, and then like, uh, and then 100 parents or guardians of those kids. And we split the room, the, the parents up into their own room and the kids into two other rooms. And we had speakers come in, three speakers, um, one talking about mindset, gratitude, positive self-talk, the other talking about trauma, what is trauma, positive coping mechanisms to trauma, breathing, meditation sound baths, um, journaling, et cetera. And then one room full of um, a meditation, a breathing exercise, just to give people an introduction. We talked about goal setting. We talked about uh, proper nutrition and how you know, how that plays a part in our daily life. And um, I shared my story with the kids, you know, why we were there and why, you know, I think that this is important, why we were at a mental health camp instead of a football camp, which a lot of other athletes run. And the goal really is just to give our young people the tools to be able to handle the things that um, that happen in life. And uh, we focus, you know, a lot in the Black and Brown communities because we want to talk about um, about mental health, and and it's a taboo topic, you know, for a lot of people, but especially within Black and Brown communities. So it was important for me as a Black man to get up on stage and talk about mental health. We had a Black therapist there. We had another black man come in that was uh, in the public eye to have like a roundtable talk. So they saw three, you know, black or brown men on stage talking about their feelings, talking about their experiences and and really just normalizing this conversation. But for me, it's, it's really just about giving our people the tools. You know, I, I took everything that I that was beneficial for me in my growth process from 16 to 18 uh, I would say it took me about two years to to come from underneath the dark cloud that I was under. Uh, I, I I don't like the word depression, so I don't, I don't say depression. I I, I call it a, a cloud, and and so I was under I was under this dark cloud for a couple of years, and then I started to see the sun a little bit. And at that point in time, when I was starting to see a little bit of the sun, I was like, "Yo, I gotta share all this stuff with." with the with the youth because you shouldn't be 28 29 30 just finally getting an idea of how to handle some of these issues you know if we can have a touch point with a eight nine ten year old and they can remember one thing from this from this summit then you know when the time's right you know that can help them and maybe they won't make some of the same mistakes that i've made maybe they don't have to you know hurt people or or you know like and so that was really that was really the motivation for me. Um, and we're going to be running uh, two in San Diego this summer. So we're, I'm excited to have that up and going again um, and to be able to continue to reach out to our young people and continue to just share all of the resources that are out there um, for us to to heal and to be the best version of ourselves. That's awesome, man. Congratulations. What are the other arms of the Kenny Stills Foundation doing? So that's the other arms are a work in progress, but we, um, the things that I really care about are providing um, kids and young people opportunities uh, outside of the things that they already do. I think my life really changed when my mom moved me from the area that I grew up to 
the area that I went to high school. And so I, we, I really want to get involved and, and partner with uh, other organizations that are taking kids on field trips, museums, you know, if it's a kid that lives in the inner city that's never been to the beach, what, what have you, just getting involved with um, helping our young people have experiences outside of their neighborhood. Because um, I think, you know, that's when the light really turned on for me. You know, I have this story of saying, like, I, I went to my, my friend's house in high school and we they had a walk-in pantry you know i grew up in a apartment my whole life and i seen a walk-in pantry and it like it blew my mind like a pantry they got snacks in here they got food in here like what like it just like i'm like what and then i really you know i put two and two together that i could i had a talent that could help me get something like this for my family and i know it's it sounds dumb and small but like when you grow up in an apartment your whole life and you see something like that, it can, you know, I'm like, whoa, what? Like, it really just blew my mind. And so I, I look at having the opportunity to provide an experience like that for someone young um, and just understanding like, hey, there is other things outside of our neighborhood, our street, our school, our what have you. And um, hopefully we can be, you know, part of, you know, that, that light that turns on for young people to say, Hey, damn, there's so much out there in this world. And, um, and that's all for me, you know, I can go out there and get that too. And so that portion, and then my dream really is to have some type of like, uh, holistic health, like health center, wellness center. I think about like the opportunity for us to be able to democratize our health. You know, I think you go to the hospital now and you have somebody, you know, diagnose you and then they tell you what you should do. And I feel like it should be more of a situation where you go to the hospital or they diagnose you and then they give you the options of what's out there. You know, here are the holistic ways you can help yourself. Here are the ways you can, you know, the other ways you can help yourself, but here are all the options. And so uh, in the process of the next, you know, couple of years or however long it takes me, that'll be something that I'll continue to try and be around or help influence. Um, and just know that, you know, I can't do everything on my own, but, and I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel, but that's something that I want to be a part of and continue to encourage people to, to search out and be a part of for themselves. I resonated with, uh, your statement that you don't like the word depression and, uh, I've been reading, some alternative perspectives on mental health recently. And one of the viewpoints is that depression, we, we, we pathologize depression. Like it's something wrong with us. Uh, and the point that was made was actually depression is a perfectly appropriate response to demoralization. And so it's like, that's actually a healthy response. It's not something wrong with us. It's bodies, our bodies and our minds are working as they're supposed to. You got to change the inputs um mm -hmm. such that the demoralization doesn't happen but the converse and going to back to your you know great story about the pantry hope is the opposite right to to the demoralization hope is the response to opportunity and growth and freedom and, and exploration uh and so as much as a pantry may feel like a small thing i think it's actually a great parable for the real conversation that that needs to be happening so with that i think that's a beautiful place to stop and so I wanted to hey, thank you um, for joining us today. Thank you for being a part of the field trip story. Thank you for trusting us to, to go through our experience uh, a while ago. And again, wanted to extend my personal um, invitation. Anything you're working on, I'd love to support it, whether it's helping build that center or you know, knocking down the doors of the NFL owners, let me know. Uh, but would love to keep that dialogue open and see what we can do together because uh, there's lots that needs to be done. And uh, I think a few sensitive men out there can can do a lot to moving those needles. So 100%, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. I'm always, you know, following what y'all are doing and trying to continue to just build up my toolkit, you know, and, and educate myself. And so uh, I look forward to continuing to do that and being a part of what Field Trip's got going on. And I'm, I'm sure you'll get to see a lot more of me now that, uh, you know, I'll be turning the page on on football and, and exploring what else is out there for me and how I can make an impact. It's been said that all a person can do in this life is gather about him, his integrity, his imagination, and his individuality. And with these ever with him, out front and in sharp focus, leap into the dance of experience. And I can honestly say that if you've been listening to some of our recent conversations on this podcast, we've seen that in full relief. First, with Mike Posner, whose story I found to be so touching and engrossing. 
A person who has achieved such incredible heights only to gather his integrity, imagination, and individuality and give up comfort for a life intentionally of discomfort. And now with Kenny Stills, whose story in so many ways mimics that of Mike's, they had it all and they are intentionally sending it off because it is inconsistent with who they are. That ought to tell you something about the state of modern life, or at least a few men's experience with it. But the other thing I found to be so intriguing about these two guys is that they are both deeply sensitive men in a world where sensitive men are still routinely mocked and castigated. Now, sure, it's one thing for Mike, a nice Jewish kid from the suburbs of Detroit, to come out and be open about being sensitive. But it's totally another thing for a guy like Kenny, a guy who was raised in literally the most macho masculine context, football and military, to do so. And I will happily throw my name into the ring as well. That has been part of my journey over the last year, being honest about just how deeply sensitive I am. Whether you're ready for it or not, there's an army of us sensitive men coming to a theater near you. You've been warned, and I hope you're ready for it, because I'm pretty sure our world is. As a quick reminder, please follow, rate, and review Field Tripping wherever you get your podcasts and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtriphealth.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producer is Conrad Page and associate producer is Macy Baker. Thanks so much to Kenny Stills for joining us today. <laughs>